0: Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video.
1: It was two years after Lyndon Johnson's Sputnik hearings... The same marble hall of the Senate caucus room was now ringing with activity again. Reporters clicked up the three flights of stairs by the rotunda of the Russell Senate building. They filed in through the heavy wooden doorways. They snatched up seats and spots along the wall of that grand room. Television cameras were stationed in the back corners that were huge and loud and took several people to operate. There was a different senator now standing behind the long mahogany table, a little shorter than Johnson, thinner, younger, an American flag hung off to his right side. The cameras started rolling. Reporters held their pens over pads of paper waiting any moment for it to start.
2: I am today announcing my candidacy for the presidency of the United States.
3: January 2nd of 1960, John F. Kennedy, then senator of Massachusetts, announces that he plans to run for president of the United States. This is Kate Scott of the Senate Historical Office.
2: The presidency is the most powerful office in the free world. Through its leadership can come a more vital life for all of our people.
3: He seemed not very polished. He seems a little unsure of himself. He's like looking at his note cards, and he's kind of uncomfortable and fidgeting, and and he's so awkward.
2: In it are centered the hopes of the globe around us for freedom and a more secure life.
3: He doesn't exhibit any of the vigor and confidence that I think of when I think of historic JFK speeches. Senator
2: Kennedy, if you don't win the presidential nomination, will you accept the vice presidency? I shall not on any condition be a candidate for vice president. If I fail in this endeavor, I shall return and uh, serve uh, in the United States Senate.
1: And yet, ten months later, he would be elected the next president of the United States he beat out Lyndon Johnson for the Democratic nomination. Johnson, a fellow senator, more than that, the Senate majority leader. A man who commanded this marble room during the Sputnik hearings with charisma and sheer force of will. I think that from Johnson's perspective, he saw JFK as a political
3: rival. I think that they both recognized in the other that they had ambitions, political ambitions for the White House. And so they were rivals, two very different individuals with very different backgrounds, which brought them to the United States Senate. And I think that some of those tensions caused by their political rivalry
1: probably carried over. That is, carried over when Johnson became vice president. And those tensions carried over too, when Johnson pushed Kennedy to the moon. I'm Lillian Cunningham with the Washington Post. And this is Moonrise.
2: Well, first I want to say that there will not be under any conditions, be an intervention in Cuba by United States Armed Forces. The basic issue in Cuba is not one between the United States and Cuba. It is between the Cubans themselves. What is to be found out there? Asking themselves if life exists on any of the planets to provide answers to questions such as these is one of the major missions of NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration.
1: There's a myth that's grown up around President Kennedy's decision to go to the moon. We've memorialized his bold and inspiring moonshot speeches. We've credited him almost as the architect of this idea. And yes, he did as President commit the United States to that goal. But the question we've been working our way towards this whole time is why? Somebody gave him that idea. He didn't dream it up on his own. Who? And what made JFK say, let's do it? We have come finally to the part of our story where the wild sci fi fantasy of sending humans to the moon becomes an actual government program. And to understand that last piece of the puzzle requires picking up here two years before the election of John F. Kennedy, when NASA was created.
2: NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration.
1: NASA officially got up and running on October 1st, 1958, so almost exactly a year after the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. It actually wasn't even referred to as NASA at first. Everyone called it the NASA. NASA. Dwight Eisenhower was still president at the time. He ordered NASA to absorb a bunch of different space-related efforts from around the government and military branches. NASA absorbed the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. It absorbed aeronautical research labs like Langley and Ames, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory that was being run out in California for the Army. It also absorbed a human spaceflight program that the Air Force was planning. They came up with the idea after the Soviets launched Leica the dog. When the spaceflight program got turned over to NASA, they named it Project Mercury. There were already Atlas and Jupiter rockets named from classic mythology, so they stuck with that naming concept. In myth, Mercury was a fast winged messenger and the grandsons of the deities Atlas and Jupiter they also decided to call the men, and it was all men that would be trained to fly to space, astronauts. The word had appeared in an obscure sci-fi story from 1930 called the Death's Head Meteor. But of course the word astronaut also had classical roots, meaning someone who flies among the stars. To be clear, these men were not training in any way to go to the moon. It was a group of seven men whose mission was just to test humans' ability to orbit around the Earth. NASA decided to call these astronauts the Mercury Seven.
0: The agency had only been in existence for a few months, but in April of 1959, when they unveiled the Mercury Seven astronauts.
1: This is former chief NASA historian Roger Launius.
0: And when they were unveiled, it was a circus-like atmosphere. These men, the nation's Project Mercury astronauts, which of these men
2: will be first to orbit the Earth? I cannot tell you. He won't know himself until the day of the flight.
1: It's amazing to watch the old footage of this news conference. First of all, tons of people there are smoking through the whole thing, including half the astronauts. But what's really wild is just how thrown together and informal the event feels.
2: Uh, thank you, all. Uh, I really am here.
1: Uh, and you can tell sports... that NASA is so new to this. They
0: used the, uh, the ballroom from the Dolly Madison house where they did this press conference, and they'd never seen so many people. The, the journalists were in from every media that you could think of, the, uh, television cameras, movie reel footage, everything was there. And, and it was circus-like. I don't think there's any other way to characterize it.
2: And I consider it a very real honor, gentlemen. From your right, Malcolm S. Carpenter, Leroy Leroy G. Cooper, John H. Glenn, Virgil I. Grissom, Walter M. Shearer, Alan B. Shepard, Donald
1: K. Slay. Seven men, all white, all under five foot eleven, all between thirty
4: and forty years old.
1: These ladies
2: and gentlemen are the nation's Mercury astronauts.
4: Uh, the Mercury Seven were so similar looking that they took to occasionally lining up in alphabetical order when pictures were taken of the whole group so that the newspapers would get the captions correct because people looking at the picture couldn't necessarily figure out easily who was who. This is Margaret Whitecamp of the Air and Space Museum. And these seven
1: men up on stage, under the bright lights of the news cameras, they looked the part. buzz cut hair, military physiques, Here's Mercury 7 astronaut Wally Shearer answering a question during the event about what got him interested in going to space.
2: I think I can answer that simply. Uh, All of us in this room probably have uh, read comic strips such as Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, Jules Verne routines, and uh, if we had interest in reading things like this, obviously we had intentions of following something like this in our lifetimes.
1: Listening to the rest of the news conference, the responses of all seven of these men seem to play right into the tropes of those science fiction tales of the 1930s and 40s. right,
4: so the the hero heading into a new place. Uh,
2: I jokingly, uh, of course, said that uh, I got on this project because it'd probably be the nearest to heaven I'd ever get, and I wanted to make the most of it.
4: A love interest with a lot of moxie.
2: As a matter of fact, when I was uh, notified that I was to be uh, considered, I was at sea at this uh, time, and so my wife called Washington and volunteered for me.
4: <laughs> <laughs> a kind of uh, older, uh, avuncular figure, a scientist of some sort, who's advising the young, usually blonde, muscular male hero. We
2: know they're physically down near perfect. What about their IQs? Which one of you, John went on? That's easy, Walt. <laughs> They're all above, all above normal. Yes.
1: Right now, for the announcement at NASA headquarters, they were wearing
4: jackets and ties. But for their spacesuits, well, it seemed obvious what they'd look like. You've got a whole generation that really grows up in the 1950s with these dreams of space flight that are very much connected to silver lame suits and kind of militaristic style uniforms with giant um, lightning bolts on them. These were basically the costumes on the popular sci-fi
1: TV show, Space Patrol. And sure enough, soon the astronauts would be photographed in their shiny silver space suits, silver helmets, silver boots, and the blue logo of NASA with a red swish across their chest. They were ready to take America on an adventure to space.
0: They really were very useful sort of public relations people, as well as being highly technically capable pilots. And they just captured the imagination of the the American public in ways that nobody had ever been able to do previously.
1: Fiction blurred into reality. Reality blurred into fiction. Before, nuclear nightmares had come true. So maybe now another sci-fi prediction was about to be realized. The dream of flying through the stars. That said, keep in mind, this was still the tail end of the Eisenhower administration. JFK hadn't even announced his presidential run yet. So for now, the chances seemed pretty slim that Project Mercury would turn into anything more fantastical than simply a flight around the Earth.
0: NASA, of course, makes everything about the positive side. And NASA's been very effective at sort of selling that argument. The military, which has the the piece of it that is really about terror and destruction, um, they don't talk about that too much. I, I would contend that Uh, that duality has always been present and still is uh, in terms of space. We we think of it as this positive opportunity for us to get off this planet and go somewhere else to explore it. And that's sort of a hopeful future approach. But there's just as much about this that's about sort of a negative side to it.
1: As Project Mercury began and NASA came into its own, It's not like the military efforts stopped. If anything, the military branches now had more bandwidth for programs that focused on the defense aspects of space. Werner von Braun was still part of the army. He watched as NASA chose astronauts and photographers clicked their cameras and the public laughed and swooned at an idea of spaceflight that von Braun had been pushing all along. Around the time the Mercury 7 were announced, von Braun's group, the Army Ballistic Missile Agency, had an idea. They came up with a military reason for extending space travel beyond Project Mercury. It was called Project Horizon, and the plan was that they would create a military base on the moon. And the chief authors of it were staffers who worked for von Braun. Their proposal was more than 100 pages long, and it's full of diagrams and cosmic drawings and amazing technical details of why and how we would set up this moon base. Under this army plan, they would start delivering cargo to the moon by 1965, and then there would be a task force of 12 soldier astronauts living on the moon army base by 1966. And according to the report, the benefits of this base would be almost uncountable. First and foremost, it would give the United States the ultimate high ground. We'd have a prime spot for surveillance of the earth we could build moon-based weapons that could destroy enemy targets the proposal argues that this might even be the best way to avoid war and to ensure peace on the planet because who's going to attack the united states if we have a base on the moon we can retaliate from embedded in the proposal was the idea that the moon and all this space between the earth and the moon should be considered a military theater, which meant not only should we build a base, they said, but we also needed to create a US Space Command, basically a new military branch for space. Von Braun's group wrapped up this report by June of 1959. The proposal's big point was that we learned our lesson from Sputnik about what happens when we're second and we have to race to catch up. Let's not repeat that. Being second to a satellite launch, that's not great, but it's not catastrophic. But being second to planting a flag on the moon and claiming it with a military base? You can't be second. You're either first or it's game over. They put this whole big proposal in front of Eisenhower, and Eisenhower rejected it. Eisenhower's philosophy was,
0: you know, I don't see any reason to pursue a moon program or any of that kind of stuff. We have no enemies on the moon.
1: He rejected it, and he got these guys and their space proposals out from the Army and over to NASA. It was almost like Eisenhower saw NASA as the place to put all the dreamers and schemers who were interested in space travel, so they would stop muddying the serious defense objectives of his military. Von Braun's rocket team stayed in Huntsville, Alabama, the same place that they had been for the Army, but they became part of a powerful new NASA operation located there called the Marshall Space Flight Center. And von Braun was named its director. Just like that, von Braun finally became the head of the US rocket program for space.
3: In the White House, in the Office of the President of the United States, we present an address by Dwight D. Eisenhower. This is the farewell address for President Eisenhower, whose eight years as chief executive
2: come to an end at noon Friday. Mr. Eisenhower has chosen this time for his final speech. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans.
1: Eisenhower left office in January of 1961.
2: In the councils of government, We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military industrial complex.
1: His farewell speech was full of warnings.
2: The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist.
1: Warnings about communism.
2: We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes we should take nothing for granted.
1: Warnings not to use national security as a justification for over-militarization.
2: Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together.
1: Eisenhower also gave a warning that's less remembered today but it's right there at the heart of his speech.
2: In holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite.
1: In other words, he said, be careful that these pushy space scientists don't steer government priorities. He gave this speech at 8.30 p.m., January 17th, 1961, from the Oval Office. His image pulsed across American television screens in black and white, and at the end of it, he took off his big glasses, he folded them in his hands, he leaned back in his chair, and he just said,
2: Thank you, and good night.
1: It began a new era. On the radio, Etta James and Chubby Checker. In books, Robert Heinlein had published what would become his most famous, Starship Troopers, about a future war between humans and aliens and the rise of space soldiers. On television... Programming was slowly making the switch from black and white to color. And in the Oval Office, John F. Kennedy was president. 43 years old, the youngest man ever elected to the office. Kennedy had talked during his campaign about closing the missile gap and beating the Soviets. But when he got into office... He saw the same intelligence reports that Eisenhower had. At which point, JFK then realized what Eisenhower had been trying to convey all along that the United States already did outpace the Soviet Union when it came to ballistic missiles. Those satellites were just effective Soviet propaganda stunts.
0: You know, when, when Kennedy came into office in January of 1961, he had no special interest in space. Roger Lanius again. He had used the idea of a missile gap, that the Soviets had capabilities greater than ours in terms of ballistic missiles as a, uh, as a hammer in the, in the political campaign. But beyond that, he didn't really know or care very much. And, and, and we, by the way, we know he didn't really care that much because NASA comes into his office right after he takes office and wants more money to work on a a larger rocket. And they couldn't get anywhere inside the administration on this. They uh, were having difficulty getting to see the president even on it. But finally, Jim Webb, who was the NASA administrator, found a way into the Oval Office. Kennedy says, you can have about half the money you want, but not all of it. And and so if he was such a gung-ho space enthusiast, he would have gone on for this with no trouble at all. But he didn't. And he sort of went away from that, not paying too much attention to it after the fact, until Gagarin's launch on the 12th of April. Now, that changed a lot of things.
2: The space pilot, whom the Russians have deified as the man of the century, arrives at the airport outside of Moscow for his first public appearance.
1: Yuri Gagarin's launch.
2: Questions that have arisen in the West about the validity of his flight have no place here today as the crowds go wild over the first man band... to talk to On April 12, 1961,
1: so just a couple months into his presidency, Kennedy had his own version of a Sputnik moment. The U.S. was in the process of training the Mercury 7 to fly into space when news came that a Soviet rocket had lifted off from Earth, carrying the cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. The Soviets had retrofitted a spy satellite into a module that Gagarin could scrunch himself into and orbit the planet. Newspapers around the world the next day carried images of Gagarin. Headlines marked this historic moment. Man had his
2: first great success in space when the Russians pushed a man across the threshold. He was Yuri Gagarin, the astronaut the Russians lionized as the first to orbit the Earth. It was the propaganda coup of
1: the year. And there were boastful quotes from Nikita Khrushchev, like, Let the capitalist countries try to catch up the Soviet Union had now beaten the United States to every space stunt so far. First satellite in space. First animal in space. Now, first human in space.
0: Khrushchev, the Soviet premier, was very adept at using those space spectaculars as sort of ways to beat up the Americans and look at how good we are. And we can do this stuff, and apparently you can't. And he gained a lot of world prestige as a result of this. So it's sort of soft power. Khrushchev was able to use this effectively. I mean, he immediately sent uh, Yuri Gagarin on a world tour and Gagarin, they could not have found a better, more personable, more charismatic individual. He's sort of a John Glenn type. As
2: tens of thousands to Red Square to get a glimpse of their
0: hero. And, And had that attraction that people liked. And so he becomes a really effective sort of PR guy for the Soviet Union in the aftermath.
1: Behind Gagarin's success, of course, was Soviet chief rocket engineer Sergei Korolev. He had pulled off yet another remarkable feat. Even more remarkable, actually, given that he had suffered a heart attack just a few months before. Korolev was still experiencing health problems from his time in the Gulag. Plus, he was feeling the stress of some new friction between him and Khrushchev, on top of the stress of his demanding work. But for now, he had another win to celebrate. Less than a week later, the newspaper headlines turned even grimmer for the Kennedy administration. The Bay of Pigs invasion went horribly wrong. It was supposed to be a covert CIA operation to overthrow Fidel Castro's communist government in Cuba. It ended up being a very overt Cold War failure for the United States.
0: We intend to profit from this lesson. Kennedy has to stand up and take the blame for it publicly we intend to intensify our efforts for a struggle in many ways
2: more difficult than war where disappointment will often accompany us and
0: that soviet success with gagarin and that american failure at the bay of pigs creates an environment where kennedy says in essence i have to change the subject how can i get out of this mess and at that point he signals to Vice President Lyndon Johnson, what can we do in space that we can beat the Russians at? That's the first and foremost thing.
1: Eisenhower had rolled his eyes at what he saw as the false hysteria over Soviet space spectaculars and dramatic headlines. Not Kennedy. Kennedy didn't personally know a lot or care a lot about space, but he understood that images mattered that they were possibly even more powerful than the reality behind them. And that leads us back to the moon. In most tellings of the space race, this is where the story begins. Kennedy's decision to go to the moon is the opening line. But there's a narrative trick pulled from classic mythology called In Medias Race, That's Latin for in the middle of things. It's when you start a story right in the midst of the action. The Iliad starts in the middle of the Trojan War. The Odyssey starts with Odysseus held captive partway through his voyage. And now perhaps we realize that our American myth, the Apollo story, starts in Medias race too. Kennedy's moonshot decision looks like the beginning but it's actually the very middle of the moon tale. So much has led to this moment, so much that often gets obscured and not talked about. Going to the moon was not a foregone conclusion. It wasn't obvious, it wasn't inevitable. Up until this point in the story, no one in power, not even Kennedy was thinking of moon travel as a real option at all. So why, when Kennedy is battered by the Bay of Pigs and by Yuri Gagarin's flight, is the idea of going to the moon the thing that gets into his head? Why did Kennedy decide that should be the goal? Well, he didn't at first. On April 21st, 1961, so a week after Gagarin's flight and in the midst of the fallout from the Bay of Pigs fiasco, Kennedy gave a news conference. He had to answer reporters' questions about the space race. And Kennedy actually came off as surprisingly pessimistic. Well, Mr.
5: President,
2: uh, don't you agree we should try to get to the moon before the Russians, if we can? If we can get to the moon uh, before the Russians, uh, we should. And isn't it your responsibility to apply the, uh, the, uh, the vigorous leadership uh, to spark up this program? When you say spark up the program, we first have to make a judgment based on the best information we can get whether we can be ahead of the Russians to the moon. We're now talking about a program which may be, uh, which are many years away. And I can just say to you that regardless of how much money we spend on the Saturn, the Saturn is going to put us, we're still going to be second. The question is whether the nuclear rocket or other kinds of chemical rockets offer us a better hope of making a jump forward. But we are second in the, uh, and the Saturn will not put us first.
1: So in other words, JFK wasn't sure there was any point investing further in a space program at all. And yet something was happening behind the scenes that would change his mind. In private, he sent a letter to Vice President Lyndon Johnson. He said, pull together immediately a recommendation of what we could do in space that would actually give us a win on the world stage. Now, I really wanted to see this letter JFK sent to Johnson firsthand, so I went up to Boston to the Kennedy Library and Archives.
5: So this is actually the letter that John Kennedy sent. You can see his... uh his signature here.
1: I met there with Jamie Roth, the deputy director.
5: So this is what he sent to the vice president. Do we have a chance of beating the Soviets by putting a laboratory in space, or by a trip around the moon, or by a rocket to land on the moon, or by a rocket to go to the moon and back with a man? Is there any other space program which promises dramatic results in which we could win? And that right there is, I think, a very key idea for the president a dramatic result, which we could win. And then Johnson had a week to find that information out and report back to the president.
1: Johnson, with his big Texas drawl, went over to Jim Webb, the new head of NASA, which meant walking like a block from the White House.
0: Johnson goes out, begins to... Talk to the people at NASA and says, okay, what can can we do here, guys?
1: Tell me everything about where our space programs stand. Tell me where we're behind. Tell me if you have any great ideas for something we could do where we could actually beat the Soviet Union. We need some great space publicity right now. So Webb, who's really new to all this stuff, turns to his number two at NASA, Hugh Dryden, who'd been working on aeronautics for the government for a decade.
6: Brilliant guy. He's the youngest PhD from Johns Hopkins ever.
1: NASA's chief historian, Bill Barry.
6: He got his PhD at the age of, like, 19. Um, And he wrote his PhD dissertation on supersonic flight.
1: Hugh Dryden is this smart space guy with round glasses and pursed lips who knows the ins and outs of everything the government could possibly do in space.
6: Interesting guy. Um, Brilliant character, does all this great stuff. But um, he apparently annoyed a number of people in Congress and he had some enemies on the hill.
1: Which is why Johnson and Kennedy didn't consider him for the very top spot at NASA. Anyway, so Webb turns to Dryden and says, What could we suggest the president do? Dryden says, What could we suggest? Thought you'd never ask turns out the scientists at NASA knew exactly what they wanted to convince Kennedy to do. They had just been waiting for an opening. They wanted to go to the moon. NASA had already been working up its dream plan with the help of internal leaders like Dryden and Von Braun.
0: Step one was to put up a space capsule with a personal board just to see if you can survive in space. And that was essentially Project Mercury. Their second step was to build a winged reusable vehicle that would make it relatively easy to go back and forth to Earth. Uh, The third step was to build a space station in Earth orbit that that winged reusable vehicle, a space shuttle, if you will, would go up to, rendezvous and dock with, and... The next step beyond that was to dispatch from that space station a mission to the moon and ultimately to Mars.
1: In an oral history that Dryden later gave to the Kennedy Library, he talked about how these plans had been floating around NASA even before Johnson came to speak with them. In fact, they had tried selling Eisenhower on the idea a couple years earlier without any luck.
2: And these studies uh, that were going on were internal, internal studies NASA studies. These were entirely internal
1: NASA. And then, of course, on the thought that perhaps a new president would reverse the decision of President Eisenhower to stop with Project Mercury. And they were trying
2: to get in some position... Uh, to uh, make proposals. Is there any basis for optimism that that would
1: be reversed at, at this point? No, I think it's a new
5: group coming in. We make a new sales
0: pitch and <laughs> so on.
1: But fast forward to April, and suddenly it looked like the moonshot might have a chance. After all, Johnson was there specifically asking them for big ideas. The workers at NASA had convinced Dryden, who convinced Webb, who then delivered the following recommendation to Johnson.
0: How about a moon landing? And uh, we can do that. But we have to set the deadline so far into the future that the Soviets just can't, sign, can't use a big rocket and beat us because they had a bigger rocket. Um, so we have to do something else. And, and so that's where they hit upon a, a human landing on the moon by the end of the decade. That would give them enough time to be successful as long as they put the effort at, into it.
1: Johnson wrote in his recommendation a week later to Kennedy, You really need to consider a moon mission, Mr. President. The Kennedy Library has the actual letter that Johnson wrote pushing this moon idea. Um,
5: so here's a memo for the president. It was written uh, by Vice President Johnson.
1: This letter comes oh, only right, like a, a few, week later. Yes,
5: it and was high was priority.
1: priority. Do you know what these mark the markings that we're seeing are about? Like uh, these squiggly lines.
5: And- um, so this is this could be the president's copy. Uh, he did like to doodle, so it wouldn't be surprising if he he made these types of little squiggly lines, but. Um, the other the other markings of you can see that this was related, confidential and of course it was a a declassified document this was classified at the highest levels because it dealt with space and Kennedy had asked are we a leader are we moving fast are we doing everything it takes that we can to be leaders in the space program and Johnson's response was no we're not doing everything we could at this point Um, he also first goes on to say that it's going to cost $500 million to jumpstart the program, uh, that we are behind in the technology. Um, We are working on different ideas about the fuel, whether we're going to do nuclear or liquid fuel. Um, He mentions those things. But he's really saying to the president, we're far behind where we ought to be.
1: But then he addresses Kennedy's question, What can we do about it? In Johnson's response, he specifically mentions that a manned moon landing might be just the thing to get us ahead. Johnson points out that it would have, quote, great propaganda value, and also that it is, quote, essential as an objective. Johnson was sold, but Kennedy got this note from his vice president, and he wasn't as sure. As you'll recall, Kennedy and Johnson had different backgrounds and different political instincts. They decided to have a meeting in the Oval Office to discuss it.
0: Jim Webb was present as the NASA administrator. I think there was at least one person from the DoD, and um, and they talked about what are the options, and uh, and Johnson laid out the Apollo, what became the Apollo program. Uh, helped by the NASA folks who were there.
4: Lyndon Johnson, by personality, was a very determined person who was a political force in the White House. Margaret Wade camp. And so when he had something in his head that he really wanted, it was hard to dissuade him of that. What if
1: Johnson and Webb were leading the president astray? This was a really big gamble. Kennedy listened, and he weighed the costs and benefits.
4: It was an ambitious goal, but it was something that NASA and his science advisors were telling him was achievable, and that could be done with the technology that they had. So he's thinking about the international stage, he's thinking about uh, national prestige, and he's thinking about that worldwide reaction. What could we do that would get the world's attention?
6: President Kennedy didn't give a hoot about space exploration. What he cared about was beating the Russians. NASA's Bill Barry. And the space program was kind of his desperation Hail Mary pass to to basically deflate um, Soviet propaganda on that issue by moving the goalposts.
1: Everyone's there in the room telling Kennedy, look what this does for us. It helps us save face if the Soviets beat us to any more incremental space achievements. It puts the U.S. goalpost at the end of the decade... Which means we can brush off any stunts the Soviets do between now and then.
6: When the Russians say they did something, we just go pfft, so what? We'll see you on the moon.
1: If the Russians do something, we just go, so what? We'll see you on the moon. (laughs) Yuri Gagarin's flight, the Bay of Pigs disaster, Kennedy was one, two, three, only three months into his presidency, and already he was facing down a massive image problem. He needed an escape hatch, a diversion, something to change the fate he saw barreling his way. See you on the moon. (laughs) What a crazy idea. Was it inspired, inspiring... It might be. It was also strategic. It was forged of pressure and anxiety and necessity and war and saving face and competition. All the ugly things that make us human. It was born of all things good and bad. See you on the moon. A month later, Kennedy arrived at Capitol Hill in his presidential motorcade. He walked into the House of Representatives, the largest room in all of Congress. He walked down the center aisle to a full hall of clapping senators and representatives. He climbed the steps to the lectern. He shook Lyndon Johnson's hand. He shook the hand of John McCormick, Speaker of the House. Then he turned and faced the huge crowd, a giant American flag draped from the press gallery behind him. He set down his papers, he leaned in toward the microphone, and he started his speech. next episode of Moonrise, Kennedy's doubts grow. He thinks, what have I done? And he tries to undo it. Moonrise is a Washington Post audio podcast. It's the result of the work of producer Bishop Sand, project coordinator Allison Michaels, art designer Courtney Kahn, and director of audio Jess Stahl. Extra thanks for the editing help of Carol Alderman. Our podcast launch event was hosted by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. The experts who appeared on this episode were Bill Barry, Chief Historian of NASA, Roger Lanius, a former Chief Historian of NASA, Jamie Roth, the Deputy Director at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library. Kate Scott, an Associate Historian in the Senate Historical Office, and Margaret Weidekamp, a Curator at the National Air and Space Museum. Archival recordings came from the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library, NASA, the Russian History Audio Archive of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, Critical Past, and the United States Information Agency. Enjoying the podcast? Recommend it to a friend. We'd love your help spreading the word about it. I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Chapter 9. But, but I'll
6: tell you what will be accomplished by your president? and it will be one of the most important things that's been done in this nation. A basic need to use technology for total national power. That's going to come out of this space more than simply the one, let put that again. A basic ability in this nation to use science and very advanced technology to increase national power. Yeah, our economy, all always.